Hello and welcome to the Fundamental Value Podcast, hosted by Joshua Frank, co-founder and CEO of The Tie. On Fundamental Value, we speak with leading analysts, traditional finance and digital asset firms, and investigate how leading minds in the cryptocurrency space, research, analyze, and quantify the value of digital assets. Quick disclaimer, this podcast was recorded and is being made available solely for informational purposes. Today, I'm very excited to be joined by Alex Al-Karif, who is the co-founder and co-CEO at Fractal, Fractal Protocol. Uh, full transparency on this podcast episode, I am personally a seed investor in Fractal. Uh, so that means I have to ask harder questions than normal. So get ready, Alex. Uh, Alex, it's, it's, first of all, it's great to have you on. Thanks for having me. I'm a big fan of the show and obviously a big fan big, of the time. He's listened to every single episode in the I've last four hours getting ready one for this one. Uh, uh, the the only person who has. Uh, so, can you walk us through your background uh, pre crypto and how you got involved in this nonsensical space? Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so, pre crypto, uh, grew up in Geneva. Have a background in a, match, a bachelor's in math and a master's in financial engineering. Um, how I got involved in this nonsensical space? I think it it goes back pre crypto to the idea of of gold. Um, I, uh, so senior year of high school, um, we had to do a, a senior thesis, um, back in the, that's in 2011, the, the Euro, uh, is falling apart. The Greek crisis is, is making people question the viability of the Euro and, and this whole economic area. And so I decided to do my, my, uh, my thesis on gold, which, you know, similar properties to Bitcoin, limited supply, um, no central controlling power, et cetera. And so that was my first foray into that types of, of those types of philosophic, philosophical ideas. Um, one stat I like to quote is that the total supply of gold ever mined fits into Olympic sized swimming pools. Um, so that's your equivalent of you know, 21 million Bitcoin. Um, and so then, you know, Bitcoin crosses a thousand dollars for the first time. I try to send a hundred pounds to Mount, Mount Gox. I buy Bitcoin. Then Mount Gox disappears. I get annoyed. I move on with my life. And uh, um, was your Bitcoin custodied on Mount Gox? Yes, I mean I, I was no did smart you, in, in did any you shape or form your, back in the day. Well, do you still have your claim then? Don't you? Um, I can probably dig it up. I don't know if the truce is worth the squeeze. You never know. Never know. <laughs> um, but yeah, and so then uh, 2017, you know, regain interest in the space, um, and I attempt to um, or consider the idea of starting a mining farm using renewable energy of the mountains in Switzerland. Um, quickly realizing that um, it's a hugely capital-intensive business, that it's effectively an energy business, that I know nothing about the energy business, and so at the time uh, I was at Stanford and. Uh, met a couple of, of guys that were working in the AI space and decided to, to start a company there. So that was my first company um, that got acquired about two years ago. And um, that's when I returned back to crypto this time full time with, with Nature Prime. So this actually leads great into my next question, which was prior to starting Fractal, you were a co-founder of a company called Nowhere. So can you talk to us a little bit about what that did, but also 
what lessons you learned as a first time founder. I know I've learned very many lessons uh, that that are, you know, have helped you kind of get to this point so far with Fractal and you think will be instrumental in the future. I mean, I can think of a million things that I learned off the top of my head. So curious what you say. Right. So let me break the question in two parts. So um, first component, what was nowhere? Think about ChatGPT before ChatGPT applied to the media space. So we um, we built a content management system for journalists to be able to automatically generate content, parse automatically parse and generate content to be more efficient. Um, we had great technology at the time, but we're a few years too early. We actually shipped our product to a number of local news outlets to enable them to, to write newsletters and uh, ended up you know, getting acquired uh, following that. Um, lessons that I've learned, there's, uh, as you mentioned, there, there's a lot. I think um, one is that timing is really important. Um, we had a little bit of technology risk and frankly, we're a little bit too early to the space. Um, and so I thought really hard about that problem when, when starting Fractal. The other one is um, the ability to really, really understand users at a deep level. Um, and, you know, everybody's a news reader and everybody uh, in, in the consumer space thinks that they're the perfect user, but it's a lot harder to really understand what the users want. And, and um, being, I mean, the, the consumer space is just very hard understanding what they need. The feedback loop is very complicated. Um, whereas in, in this case, I feel a lot more comfortable um, basically building for my prior self uh, in my previous role at, at Ledger Prime. And, and the feedback, you know, you speak to a trader, if your product is terrible, they'll just tell you it's terrible. And so it's a lot easier to, to interview them and, and kind of build products uh, with the user in mind. It gets a very fair point, which is why we also don't service retail directly. So I'm in the same exactly. as you. Um, and so you mentioned it yourself, which is that you were managing a DeFi book at Ledger Prime uh, prior to co-founding Fractal. Uh, and so how have you seen the DeFi space evolve over the last few years? You know, when you started your DeFi book, yields were high, treasury yields were low. There was a lot of opportunity. TVL was significantly higher. A lot has changed. So kind of, can you kind of speak about the involvement of the space and how you think about managing risk reward? Sure. Um, so you're right. Initially, it was uh, it was a fairly easy job, um, but then became crowded pretty quickly and became more and more competitive. I think we went from from a technical standpoint, we went from clicking buttons on decentralized application UIs to designing custom smart contracts to execute and risk manage positions. Uh, in terms of risk rewards, actually, um, I would say that the worst point for for DeFi yields in general was probably. Uh, October of last year, uh, with the with the pullback in liquidity of the beginning of this year, following the FTX debacle, TVL is up is up by actually twenty five percent. And the interesting thing that happened is, is that, that is that in is that like notional in ETH or is that like in US dollars? In US dollars, okay. Um, in US dollars, and what's happened is in the wake of the FTX debacle. A lot of uh, volume actually moved to decentralized exchanges, which has uh, really increased the fee generation. And so, you know, to quote, there's recency bias there, but a, a recent example is, you know, the Arbitrum Ethereum Uniswap pool following the airdrop has been paying about 75% annualized over the past week. Um, that is extreme. It won't last that 75% over the past week, but we have clients that are generating north of, north of 25% annualized in this market. So 
yes, treasury years are higher, um, but it doesn't uh, it doesn't mean that there there are no opportunities in the space. And also, that's for the USD comparison, right? Um, a number of crypto investors are denominated in ETH, and their their the quote unquote risk free yield you have to beat is state state ETH yields, um, and so that means the risk reward is much better in terms of deploying capital on chain because you're already on chain by virtue of, of owning ETH anyway. So actually a follow-up question, which I'm sure you're not prepared for, but I'm going to throw at you anyways, is what do you think happens once all the ETH uns- is, is, is able to be unstaked? Do you think that it has a significant impact on markets? Do you think there's going to be a lot of selling pressure? H- how do you think about that? Kind of putting your trader hat back on. Um, so there's, I'd break it up into two components. One is, so the first layer of the argument is that a lot of supply gets unstaked and that supply has been locked for about a year and a half. Um, so arguably that's selling pressure. The other component and one of the reasons where as a liquid fund, I didn't feel comfortable staking ETH is that it removes the liquidity of staked ETH, right? So, you know, even if it's taking a few weeks to unstake, it's a lot more manageable than having a, a completely uncertain timeline. Um, so arguably, I think um, the way I would play it is that there's probably some short-term uh, selling pressure. And once you the market has digested that, it's a, it's a very bullish event for the ecosystem and for ETH price as a whole. And so what has kind of changed in the DeFi space broadly over the last few years? Uh, what's kind of been built that was needed and, and what do you think is left to build? And obviously that's a leading question a little bit into this uh, conversation. But. Um, yeah, of course. Um, so what's been built? Custody and, and wallet management has gotten a lot better. Um, two years ago, most of these decentralized applications only ported MetaMask integrations. Having an institutional grade multi-signature uh, infrastructure was um was very difficult and most of those custody providers didn't support a majority of them, even the most popular DeFi applications. So that's gotten a lot better and a lot safer. Um, smart contracts have also gotten a lot more standardized. An example to quote there is, you know, the ERC4626 standard means that uh, you're getting more standardized, inter- standardized interfaces on top of every yield bearing asset. So that's gotten better. Um, what is still left to build is I would say three things. One, monitoring and execution is still very complicated. Um, just if you imagine just the idea of a stop loss when you're trading on an exchange or even in TradFi, right? When you're putting on a stop loss, you're saying, if the price reaches X, I want to exit or I want to trigger an action. In this case, selling my position. To do that in crypto, assuming that you have multiple signers um, on your multi-signature wallet, the only way to do so is to wrap your uh, your position into a concept, a, a custom smart contract uh, that will execute that position. And obviously that's a very, very high bar to entry. And so um, just, you know, running a TWAP, uh, automatically exiting position, positions according to certain triggers uh, is still very um, missing in the space in terms of infrastructure. The other component is margin management. Um, you know, imagine that you are long $10 million of stake teeth on chain and you're a market mutual fund. And so you're also short a corresponding $10 million of ETH futures on Binance. Um, you have to post collateral on Binance. 
and you have to obviously fully collateralize the long position. And you have to constantly manage the two uh, according to the price movements to make sure that you don't get liquidated. And um, that takes a lot of time and it's still a fairly manual process as in one of the components that Fractal is looking to help with. Um, and then the final component, which is less about us, but and, and more administrative is institutional reporting. The number of time uh, or the, the amount of time that I spent on the phone with a fund admin trying to explain to them what was going on with our DeFi positions uh, was, you know, wild. And was this a crypto native fund admin or is this a traditional fund admin? It was, it was a crypto native fund admin. They, they accepted to service us, but you know, you, you provide liquidity to Uniswap. Then you get a strangely looking receipt, receipt token. Then you stake that somewhere else. Then you use that as collateral and borrow something else against it. And the chain of transactions is just gibberish for uh, any, any you know, normal fund admin. So I think there's a lot of, a lot of uh, uh, projects that are building in this space, but um, it'll be a, a massive, uh, pain point solved once that gets fully solved. So that that leads into our, you know, it sounds like you, you're you're trying to solve a couple of those problems. So what is Fractal? Uh, what do you aim to be? You know, what what is the firm focused on, both in crypto native terminology, but also kind of can you describe it in, in a way that somebody with with traditional capital markets experience would also be able to understand? Sure. Um, so Fractal is an institution uh, is an infrastructure provider that enables institutions to clear, settle, and margin digital assets on chain. What that what that means is that we're creating an on chain account um, that enables you to manage your positions and manage your collateral internally. So back to the previous example I was mentioning, imagine that you have ten million dollars of stake teeth, and then you want to make you want to protect your downside and uh, buy put options or you want to get more yield and you want to sell call options. It's actually very difficult to use your staked ETH as valid collateral for, uh, for your options against the market maker. So what we do is we enable you to get a margin loan against that staked ETH to use as collateral for the other leg of the position. And we're putting all of these things inside one simple sub-account that has effectively portfolio margining between different types of assets. That's for now. And then, you know, we're initially starting with crypto native assets. Um, but the goal is very much to expand, expand to traditional assets as they come progressively on chain. There's a lot of work being done on putting, uh, bringing U.S. Treasury yields on chain, um, real world assets, et cetera. So as you think about lending, you know, we, we've seen issues with platforms like Maple. We, 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 we love Sid, uh, but Maple had its own set of issues with uh, loans not being able to be repaid. Uh, in the past, which I think I think has now been dealt with, um, but how do you th- how do you think about that issue? Right. So that's an example that we actually uh, quoted a lot and got a lot of inspiration from um, as those problems were emerging. Um, so if you think back to the architecture of Maple, yes, it's a strictly better system whereby they put the loans on chain, so you have transparency on the loan book for the lender. Uh, but then the borrower takes the takes the USDC loan and then. Um, they take them off chain and they can do whatever they want with it. And so our value prop to a provider like Maple um, is to say, okay, if you lend to a fractal subaccount, you get live transparency and risk metrics around your loan. Because in our system, the loan never actually leaves the subaccount. It just enables you to do something else within the subaccount. 
And so you can always so see everything exists within Fractal. You can't take exactly. the asset off platform. Correct. Um, and so you can always see that, you know, you, you have a, this amount of loan to value, this amount of health factor, and uh, you can see the liquidation chain that happens live when, when uh, the position gets in trouble. Can you, can you have collateral requirements for the borrower that, you know, that are enforced via smart contract, which says like, Hey, if your, your LTV drops below a certain number, top up, you know, top up by 20%. Yes, exactly. So uh, that's what we're calling waterfall liquidations. Um, if you are serious about servicing institutions, uh, nobody likes to be liquidated while they're, while it's 2 a.m. And, and they're asleep. And so our view is that we're using the blockchain as a settlement layer, but we'll have institutional coverage. Uh, and so if you think back to your health factor level, you know, if you get liquidated when the health factor reaches one, and so at 1.1, we'll send you a message, send you an alert. At 1.07, we'll try to call you and reach you. At 1.05, we'll really, really try to reach you to top up collateral. So who's calling? Um, is it you? Is it, do I get, do I get you on the phone? Yeah. For now, for now you get me, for now you get me. And as we, as we grow our team, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll expand from there. And so, and so why build in DeFi, right? Why does Fractal have to be on chain? Obviously there's, there's, you know, we, we've seen other lenders, um, in CFI and, and everyone knows who they are, uh, blow up and there, there's a, a, and a, a clear opportunity gap there as well. So why why focus on DeFi? Obviously, that's your experience, but just curious. Yeah, absolutely. So I think three three folds: um, transparency, composability, and cost. Uh, transparency for the examples you mentioned, right? You can have an aggregate view of the health of the system in real time, um, and over time, we'll add privacy preserving layers to that, so you can have a proof that the system is solvent. The second component is composability. Um, as traditional assets and broader assets come on chain, DeFi enables, and really, I'll just take a quick break here. DeFi is a misnomer. Um, decentralization is not actually the value prop here. Transparency is. Um, and I think that's really important. I think we should refer to things as on-chain finance rather than just DeFi. Um, because that enables you to uh, enable composability between assets Without, without intermediaries. And so if you think about the number of intermediaries in traditional finance today, um, there's a lot of capital efficiency to be gained. Um, and finally, cost. I think, again, beyond decentralization, the blockchain is a disinter disintermediated, transparent layer um, that collapses all of the different layers of the stack in one component. And so we believe, uh, and I think, I hope you do too. Otherwise, you wouldn't be in this industry. That that eventually all assets that can become digital will become so because it's just cheaper to operate. And so, DeFi on a relative scale is tiny. Like I think people fail to realize how small DeFi actually is. Last, I, I wrote this question while I was taking the subway and didn't double check the numbers, but I think the numbers are basically right, which is that it's about six percent of overall crypto market cap or $60 billion the last time I checked, right? So the, the, and, and that's in terms of market cap, that's not in terms of uh, TVL. But how does it grow? How does DeFi, does DeFi need to go mainstream? It sounds like given that you think all assets will move on chain, it will, or transparent fire on chain, whatever you, whatever word you want to use. How do we get it to grow? How do we attract uh, more investors into DeFi, more TVL into DeFi? Um, 
You're right. I think it's a it's a pretty small space for now. Um, what we're attempting to do is grow the market and grow the universe of products that can be settled on a block, settled on a blockchain. Um, the the first um, target for that is OTC bilateral agreements. So you know most of the options market and a large amount of even spot transactions are settled OTC between two counterparties. These transactions um, require you know ops people to track margin and essentially message each other on Telegram to request margin back and forth, which obviously can be uh, improved by having a smart contract function where you click one button and if you're an options market maker, you send the margin that you owe to the relevant parties and you receive the margin that you're owed from the relevant parties. And so um, we're we're attacking the market by... Going crypto native first because that's that's where there is an actual need. But over time, expanding to first OTC bilateral agreements, then spot markets, and then um, just expanding the 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 universe of assets that are put on chain. And so, by the way, I just double checked. It's forty seven billion dollars, and it's about four percent of the overall crypto market cap. It's even smaller, uh, even smaller than I thought. But one of the things that I think has plagued the adoption of DeFi is the perceived risk of investing in DeFi. We have a very large number of traditional institutional clients, think large hedge funds, asset managers, and others that continue to be, in a way, frozen by their compliance team because the compliance team is like, this space can't go a week without another problem happening, whether it's and, and they're not all within DeFi, right? It could be CZ getting sued by the CFTC. It could be all these different things. But one of those issues has been DeFi exploits. Uh, and in some cases, even despite audits, uh, which we saw recently with Euler, Euler, I've heard both pronunciations. I'm not sure which one is right. So how do you uh, ensure that customer funds are safe, especially when everything is existing within uh, Fractal? That's a, that's a very good question. The first component, so we've been audited multiple times, the most recent audit with, with Zelic, which are great guys and I recommend. Um, obviously, we rely on the security of third-party DeFi protocols that we might be built on top of. Um, so there's a couple of things that we do to mitigate that. Number one, audits are actually done at a single point in time, but most teams can actually continue shipping code between audits. And so tracking the code changes between the audited version and whatever the most recent version is running is something that is really important. Another component is um, integrating both proprietary and third-party tooling to manage um, and monitor third-party protocols. Um, to there, There's a number of them that are building solutions that will automatically decode um, blocks and, and bytecode block by block to identify that uh, that something's happening. So in the case of Euler, I've you know we've had multiple examples of uh, those service providers that essentially identified that a new smart contract was deployed that was point that had its bytecode pointing to the smart contract address of Euler. That's alert level number one. Alert level number two is then they decode that smart contract and they realize it has smart it has um, flash loan capabilities, and so that's. A, bigger worrying side so the alert level goes up if you trigger that then what we're doing is we're integrating that into our uh, our infrastructure stack to automatically unwind the position and the third part is you know 
we are fairly centralized. And I think that's a feature, not a bug in the sense that um, we, we're not permissionless. We KYC our customers. And so the universe of players that is just allowed to interface with our smart contracts is much more restricted. Um, so that's on the, on the technical side. And then on the economic side, a portion of our liquidations and of our revenue is going to an insurance fund. So that will be the first loss mechanism. Um, if that were to get hit, so that's the first layer of protection, then we have our own treasury. Um, and then really, if you get to the, the third level, third level, then we'd have to socialize the losses. But we, we take that very seriously. And so one of the things that you mentioned was the fact that you're primarily servicing crypto natives at this point. So let's start there. There is an, obviously a very large existing base of crypto native institutions that have significant TVL. I'm sure you know the, the, the DeFi TVL number better than I do, though I could look it up pretty quickly. How do you attract those institutions to Fractal? What is the pitch, right? If somebody here is listening who's got $300 million uh, in a bunch of different DeFi protocols, what's, what's the kind of elevator pitch to, to come over and use Fractal? It's all about return on margin. And so that's one thing that um, I'm fairly familiar with, given my, my previous role. Um, you know, I was speaking to a customer yesterday that you know, their typical workflow is deposit USDT in location A, borrow ETH, um, and create a synthetic short position, and then use that ETH to go and deposit that somewhere in, in crypto. So that's a four-step process. Uh, they have to they have a uh, a loan on on one location, a loan on another location, the other location being Ave. So they have to monitor the health factor of both locations. Um, they don't have custom smart contract capabilities to rebalance their positions whenever the health factor reaches a trigger level. Um, and so what we enable them to do is number one, automatic, automatically manage those positions and rebalance them. And that's something that this specific customer was, you know, saying he re- rebalances four times a day. Um, so four times a day, let's just break that down for a second. Four times a day is you go to the relevant application, you submit a transaction, then you ping the rest of your team to sign those transactions. So the multi-signature goes, goes through. In general, you have an approval, a send transaction, uh, a, re- a redeposit or borrow transaction. So that's three times the time. So let's say now you spend 15 minutes um, and you have to do that four times a day. So that's an hour a day just for collateral management. And then what we enable you to do is um, free up some of that capital efficiency. So either to lever up on the same position or unlock some collateral to do something else with it. And so what about traditional capital markets participants? So, you know, uh, uh, the last six months has spooked a lot of firms that were moving into crypto. Um, From my position, that's what I'm seeing, but I'm curious as to what you're seeing. Um, you know, I, I spoke to one of the 20 largest hedge funds in the world uh, yesterday that was trading GP capital on crypto, getting ready to deploy LP capital to crypto. And then they just all of a sudden they froze GP investing because uh, everyone got freaked out about what's happening with Binance. There's like, wow, there's not very many liquidity venues that we actually can trade on other than Coinbase. Uh, and and we're, just, we're just nervous. We're just getting spooked about the space. So how do we get to a world in which institutions get comfortable with crypto and then not just comfortable with centralized crypto, but actually comfortable enough to interact with the centralized protocols? And, and, and I'm, I'm talking like $50 billion hedge funds, large asset managers, right? How do we get to that point? Yeah, so I, I agree. The reality is today the industry isn't ready for them. Um, I would say that we're probably 18 months out from those, those, uh, those players to 
to start considering it seriously. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure you also have a, an there opinion are a couple, there, right? There are a couple, right. so it's not, it's not no one, but. Right, right, right. And, and some of those we, we're, we're in active conversations with. Um, but for it to become a no-brainer to have a DeFi team uh, or to have a crypto team that, you know, is just part of the overall asset allocation, I think we'll take some time. Um, we're probably at the worst point of the cycle where uh, assets are depressed, uh, treasuries are high. And so you have a convolution of factors that paint a bad picture for for the ecosystem as a whole. As we work our way through, you know, the legal problems, the, the lawsuits, the remaining bankruptcies that have yet to happen, um, we'll, we'll probably flush some of those, uh, this bad news cycle out. Um, and then over time, I'm, I'm seeing it because I'm pretty deep in the weeds, but the technology is actually getting a lot better. Um, you're starting to solve some of the custody problems. For example, you know, Copper's clear loop product that enables you to keep your assets in cold storage while trading on exchange. And so these things just need some time to be built and to be adopted. And, you know, if you're, if you're copper, you need to, to run through the partnership and, and, uh, and convince everybody to come to the table. And then the network effect starts taking. And so it, it just takes time. But, um, I think that we'll get those institutions to start, um, trading on chain when it's just a better experience. It has to be cheaper and it has to, be more efficient from a capital efficiency point of view. And so you went from builder operator to investor back to operator. Uh, why do you, why do you make that switch back? You know, you're, you're obviously very passionate about DeFi and you know, that passion could manifest itself also in trading, which is something that you did. Right. So why do you decide to go, you know, you didn't, you didn't last that long trading. Right. So why'd you decide to kind of go straight back into building? Yeah, I didn't last long at all. Um, I think I was always a, a, a builder. Um, you, you're an entrepreneur for four years. Your brain gets pretty fried. You need a break from, you know, the ambiguity, the perpetual ambiguity of the role. And I'm sure you're very familiar with that problem. Um, and so it was actually very refreshing to have a very clear mandate as an investor. You know, it's here's uh, X amount of money. And please generate Y returns on that X amount of money. Uh, and so you're in your lane, you do your research, you deploy capital. And the feedback cycle is very simple. You know, every day you've made money or you've lost money. So it was very refreshing to do that um, for a while. What ended up happening is that as I was building systems and as I was building technology, I kept having the bug of, oh, that could actually be turned into a business. And oh, like the addressable revenue potential of this feature or this product is bigger than just the pool of capital that I'm given to manage. And so um, then you start interviewing other people that are in the same seat as yourself. You try to validate whether uh, your ideas have any value and then jump back in. I think it was inevitable. And so we spoke about DeFi infrastructure over time a little bit. Um, specifically, one of the things that you pointed out was clear loop from copper, which I think is is something whether it's copper or somebody else building it, I think the idea that you should not have to actually physically have capital deployed on every single exchange to execute on that exchange is a needed piece of having a real prime brokerage in, uh, model in crypto. Um, but kind of wh what do you think the, can you kind of talk about what you think remains uh, outstanding or what needs to get built 
both within the CFI and and DeFi space in order to really uh, attract institutional uh, capital. Sure. So, I mean, that is that is one big component. Um, I think that gets that component technically gets realized by some some form of synthetic assets, right? So, because what happens with with copper is that you have um, if you're integrating your, your copper account with Binance, what Binance is effectively saying is that they're crediting a synthetic amount of margin to your account that corresponds to your copper balance. Um, we have to build the equivalent on chain. And you can imagine that something similar happens on chain, right? You have your assets at your custodian. You're enabled to, you're enabled to trade a perp on chain, um, whereby copper has an API access into your account and can liquidate the position, um, if they, if they need to do so and vice versa. Um, Beyond that, there's certainly, you know, a regulatory aspect that needs to get cleared in the U.S. Um, and that is uh, not something that I fully control, but um, we need a friendlier uh, ecosystem for crypto uh, in the U.S. And, and hopefully the current climate will change. Um, and then, honestly, we're, you know, I, I'm going to sound like a broken record, but we need just better infrastructure for monitoring positions and, and rebalancing margin and, and uh, doing these things that are actually pretty basic um, that still require people to, to, do, to, to, to do manually in the space. And so we're currently sitting at, and, and obviously this podcast will come out a few days later, but $28,671 Bitcoin, which makes absolutely no sense to me given everything that's happened, but I'm not complaining. So what is your outlook for digital assets for then for then for over the next year? Right, we've you know you mentioned yourself. There's been a lot of regulatory clampdowns uh, on digital assets. Um, you know, treasury yields are high. Macro environment looks bad. What happens to crypto? Is is Bitcoin risk on? Is it risk off? I think it's historically been risk on, despite you know qualms from people in the crypto community. Where do you see the market going? And I'm not asking you for a price prediction. I'm more asking you for a like, do more institutions move into the space? Does retail interest come back? Does the U.S. guy, I mean, what, just, what do you think is going to happen over the next 12 months, which is an impossible question? Yes, if I had the answer, I'd, I'd be rich in 12 months. But uh, I, I, I'm giving disclaimers that it's an, <laughs> an impossible question. Um, so I think, interestingly, Bitcoin is on the cusp of its most interesting narrative uh, in a very long time with the, with the regional banking crisis and uh, a the fear of a financial crisis happening. Um, there's, you know, overfunding on the the uh, hegemony of the dollar, which you can believe or not, um, and it's probably exaggerated, but at least it, it has uh, given Bitcoin a very interesting narrative shift uh, over the past few weeks that we hadn't uh, we hadn't seen in the past two years, right? Like Bitcoin had become this boring beta asset that tracked the Nasdaq and. Um, didn't do much uh, relative to what was happening in the Ethereum ecosystem. Um, so I think I'm pretty bullish Bitcoin for the next few months. Um, and then in terms of what the space will look like 12 months from now, I think you'll probably see a divergence into two components, at least for anything that's on chain. You'll keep uh, some of the current fully permissionless, fully you know DAO operated uh immutable smart contracts that are uh, that are just living on chain for a subsection of the of the population crypto native that doesn't have to get regulated and then on the other side we'll see the emergence of what people are starting to call cdfi 
meaning you know using the blockchain as a settlement layer but being compliant being regulated when you need to when you need to be um, which enables you to start uh, clearing and trading assets beyond uh, crypto native assets right so treasuries is the first example of that we can go to real world assets and stocks and bonds etc as we go um, but um, bringing traditional financial assets means that if it's cheaper to, to operate them on chain, then the traditional investor just starts to trade them on that venue. And even if it's not fully cheaper, as you initially bring them on chain, it'll be inefficient. There will be some arbitrage opportunities. Imagine you put a US treasury on chain today. Um, it'll probably be fairly illiquid. Uh, but if you're a rates trader, you can probably trade that against your traditional finance book. And that's how it starts and, and progressively evolves. So, um, two questions that I want to ask one that I don't want to forget to ask. And then one I want to come, I'm going to, I'll just throw one out. Um, the ripple situation. So the one asset that's been outperforming Bitcoin over the last 30 days is XRP. Uh, I don't know if you've been following at all, but there's kind of a belief or the market is certainly pricing in XRP's 30 day return is 43%. It's seven day return is 21%. Um, there is clearly um, a, a market, the market is clearly pricing in Ripple winning the lawsuit against the SEC soon. Whether or not that happens, we don't know. We'll find out. Maybe the podcast is released and they already won or they lost. I don't know. But wh what do you think that means, right? What do you think them winning the lawsuit would mean? And what do you think them losing the lawsuit would mean for the market? I frankly, I frankly don't know that I'm qualified to answer to answer that question. I'm I, asking I try more to for quickly. prices of digital assets. So, like, how do you think the market not not from a regulatory point of view, but like, if if Ripple wins, does the entire market go crazy? Is is it is it is that being? Do you think that's being priced in by the market at this point? Like, how do you? And you can also just not answer. Right, that. right. No, I, I, if if we're in speculation world, and I preface that this is this is speculation and very my own speculation and hypothesis um we need to see this the streak of uh of regulatory clampdown uh, turn around at some point um and that can only be you know bullish for every other asset as a as a proxy right so that's the only thing i i would say um i think it's a very dangerous game to start gambling on future regulatory outcomes so i would uh, i would steer clear of that <laughs> There's, there's a there's a lot of money they made though if you're right you just got to be right uh yes uh, the 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 other question i wanted to ask going back to fractal for a second i know we spoke a lot about institutions using fractal but you mentioned that it's a kyc required platform does that mean high net worth individuals can also interact or is it exclusively open to institutional clients um yeah accredited investors okay. um and so that that qualifies um and then uh, we're running a standard standard KYC process. So is that just U.S. Is that just based off of U.S. accreditation rules, or does that mean somebody within another country as well? Somebody within another country as well. We actually don't service institutional uh, U.S. clients. Okay, got it. Understood. Um, and so moving on to the the question that our podcast is is named after. I say my podcast is named after, which is fundamentals. So. Uh, how do you think about or define fundamentals for digital assets? Interesting question. Um, for Bitcoin, back to my point about earlier narrative, you can either uh, 
benchmark and correlate Bitcoin to the NASDAQ or, you know, assume some value of a store of value. Um, that's on the Bitcoin component, which is hard to grasp. Uh, on the on the Ethereum denominated assets and then the projects that are living uh, within crypto, it's actually become easier and easier because you can actually build cash flow models for uh, for what those networks and what those applications generate. Uh, you can do that for Ethereum by forecasting the the staking yield over time, um, and you can start doing that with particularly decentralized exchanges on fee generation. And so, presuming that's starting to accrue to the token holders. Yes, um, that's that's a big if, um, but even so, right? Like you 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 um, you have to assume that fees will flow back to some ecosystem participant at some point, um, and then so in the case of JMX, you know that even if it's not all of the fees, it's thirty percent of the fees, I believe, um, and so you can actually forecast that. And so the as projects become more and more mature. And the space becomes more and more mature. It's becoming easier to, to build tr- some version of traditional financial models for to, to value them. And so, what are the most exciting emerging areas in crypto that you're you're seeing? Maybe that's a sub sector within DeFi. Uh, maybe it's RWAs. Maybe it's some thing on the institutional side. It's a very open ended question. But but w- what are you excited about? Yeah, I'm really excited about bringing. Um, non-crypto native assets to trade on chain um, that can be trading an option that um, that was previously settling OTC between two counterparties to settle ideally on fractal um, but then also real world assets I think uh, what's uh, what ondo finance and a couple of other projects are doing with US treasuries is really interesting um, it's probably going to be inefficient at the beginning but bringing first U.S. treasuries, then stocks and bonds and other types of real-world assets on chain is, is really fascinating. And so fast forward five years, obviously Fractal is just getting started, just in its infancy, I think. According to the website, and I don't know how accurate that is, TVL is $9 million today. Uh, where do you see Fractal five years from now? So I see Fractal as the connective tissue between um sub-accounts that are interfacing on it with, with sub-accounts supporting a giant universe of assets. And so I imagine that an institution would have a, uh, a number of sub-accounts to implement a number of strategies. All of these things was, would communicate with one another. They would not only cover crypto, but they would cover real-world assets that are trading on, trading on chain. You are enabling an institutions to uh, collateralized to, to collateralize a, a synthetic NASDAQ position against a staked ETH position, and these two can communicate with one another. And then at that point, Fractal becomes more of an ecosystem whose incentive is to bring more and more assets on chain um, than just an individual piece of risk engine infrastructure. And so my final question is, what is your most controversial take right now in crypto? You gave me an hour to think about this. Uh, I, I don't know if I, 43 minutes. So. <laughs> I don't know if I have a, uh, if I have a very good answer just yet. Um, my, I actually like um, getting long crypto here um, in general as, as a beta. I think we're at the worst possible uh, point in the cycle 
we're at the very end of bad news. Um, the macro picture looks still pretty bad. And do you like um, getting long Bitcoin or long crypto broadly? I wouldn't want to give recommendations that are specific to any one token. I'd, I'd get long the industry right now. I okay. think the, the, the froth has been washed away. Um, and so it kind of depends what investor you are. If you're just, uh, if you're an institution that's just allowed to touch Bitcoin on exchange, then, then do that. If you're a venture investor or a fund of fund, um, the vintage of companies that get funded in the next few months is probably going to have better returns than the one that got funded in, in mid 2021. You don't think pre-seed companies at a hundred plus million dollar valuations make sense. That's uh, shocking. Um, so my final, my final point, uh, is, is where can listeners find you? Where can they learn more about fractal, uh, and, and, uh, and reach you guys? Sure. Um, pretty simple. You can reach us at, uh, fractalprotocol.org. Um, otherwise we're fractal clearing on Twitter, but, uh, just to go to the website and fill in the contact form and, and we'll be there for you. Awesome. Thanks for coming on. Thanks. Take care.